Good morning. What beautiful words. All hail King Jesus. Ultimately, that's where everything rests, is who do you say that Jesus is? And it's so apropos today that we are speaking on that very thing. Amanda and the team does such a fantastic job every week. I think sometimes we get spoiled and we don't realize how good we've got it sometimes. I ask that you open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we'll be spending the large portion of our time today. My name is Jamin Heron, as you can see on the screen. Uh, my wife, Lakin, many of you know her as well. She's the one that provides all of the pictures and all that kind of good stuff for the social media page. Um, we have two, sorry guys, this is going to bug me because I am not used to it. I apologize. We are go, we've been at Connection for two years. Uh, two years this month, I believe, actually. Um, we have one daughter, Larson, and two foster children. We are foster parents, and so sometimes we have one, sometimes we have five. You know, you just never know how that stuff's going to go. So, but we thank you guys so much for your heart for foster ministry. Um, we have several families that are engaged in that here, and the outpouring of love, that connection um, has for foster care is absolutely amazing. So I've been asked to speak on evangelism today, one of our core things that we believe here at Connection. And it would be very easily easy for me to go to Matthew 28. Everybody knows that, right? The Great Commission. But the issue of non-evangelizing or not telling the world or even our neighbors about Jesus, I believe, runs much, much deeper than just that. It's my opinion that it derives from a perspective thing. We don't have the right perspective on who God is. We've maybe lost our perspective on who God is. For the past three years, since about 2018, it has been placed heavily on my heart, not only corporately, but any time that I get to meet with individuals, whether it be in discipleship or um, speak to a group of people, that I make known the God of the Bible because it is my opinion that we have lost that. We're going through an epidemic right now or a pandemic of COVID-19. Brothers and sisters, I suggest that we are going through another pandemic in the American church and that is Bible illiteracy. We have forgotten what God's word says about who he actually is. And today, I want to try, through the Spirit, to refocus us on who he is. And so as I was thinking, what can I do to combine those two elements? How can I properly frame that while also speaking on evangelism? And so I find myself, and those of you that know me know that I love the Old Testament. And so I find myself in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is encountering a similar issue. The census of 2020, every 10 years in America, we take a census. And numbers are starting to roll out um, regarding that. And one disturbing thing that has come out that I have read is that the people claiming to be an evangelical is the lowest number since World War II. Now, why is that? Is it because God doesn't save as he used to save? Of course not. It's not in his nature. I contest it's because his people aren't doing what he's commanded them to do. And so today, I hope that in the time that we are able to gather together, we can leave here with what the right perspective on who God is. And if we can do that, evangelism will naturally flow from that. And it will be very, very easy. Now, I will warn you guys, we're going to go from 0 to 100 because I don't have a lot of time with you. And I want to get this in, okay? If you are in Isaiah 6, say, I've got it. Perfect. 
in honor of reading the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God, I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet. We're going to be going into verse 8. If you do not have a Bible with you, I believe it will be on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, covering... With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one, seraph, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, has, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for who you are. Father, we thank you that in times that we may not know how to handle things, you are still on the throne and you are still God. Father, we love you. Father, I ask even now selfishly, Father, that you wipe nerves away from me. Father, use your spirit to speak through me. Allow me to be a mouthpiece so that your people can clearly hear your word. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, and we thank you for the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thomas Edward Patrick Brady. For you football fans, you will know that name. For you non-football fans, you'll just simply know him as Tom. Maybe Tom Terrific. Or just Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL. Now, some of you may want to groan and, and gripe with that, but you can groan and gripe with that in your seat because you're not bringing that mess up here. Okay? <laughs> this man has won seven Super Bowls. The closest to him has won four. Now, I know you guys that are older that love Montana. Well, I'm sorry. He's been passed. Okay? But that's not the point that, that, I'm, that I'm making. When he won his fourth Super Bowl, I want to say he was 30, 35, 36, somewhere along that. And this is a much publicized interview. Michael has talked about this a couple of times. They sat him down. They said, Tom, now, granted, Joe Montana was his boyhood idol. He grew up in the Bay Area, grew up watching the 49ers, loved Montana. They said, Tom, you have tied your boyhood idol, that and Terry Bradshaw, with four Super Bowls. You're 35 years old. Why keep going? Why continue to, to keep playing football? And he paused for a minute and he said, I don't know. There's still something just missing. Now, you and I would know that as a gospel issue. But fast forward to a few years later. He's in his 40s now and he won his sixth Super Bowl. They sat down and they asked him again. They said, Tom, you've won six Super Bowls. Which one is your favorite? Again, he paused. And with a smirk, he said, the next one. And again, last year, as many of you may know, he went to a new team in a COVID year. Led the Buccaneers, who had been the worst franchise, right, in the past decade or more to another Super Bowl. And again, they sat him down and they said, Tom, you've now won seven Super Bowls. Which one's your favorite? He said, the next one. And as details emerged, everything about Tom Brady's life revolves around one thing, winning. His perspective on life is about winning football games. The way he eats, the way he sleeps, the way he interacts, who he surrounds himself with, 
every single detail about his life revolves around winning football games because that's the perspective of his life that he has taken. Similarly, we encounter Isaiah whose perspective has been rocked as we enter into this chapter. King Uzziah had just died. Now this king, you can read about him in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. He was a good king by all accounts toward the end of his life. There's some pride issues that happened and some different things went on that we don't have to get into today. But he reigned for 52 years. We're used to presidents going four years maybe a second term, and getting another four years. And again, by all accounts, he was a great king. Judah was very successful. They had won many, many battles and had been prosperous. This was a time, as you can imagine, of great mourning for the people that were around him. But God, which are my two favorite words in Scripture, by the way, but God intervenes in Isaiah's life By giving him a glimpse of the throne of God as if to say, Yes, your earthly king has died, but your heavenly king still reigns on the throne. And beloved, how many times do we encounter the same thing Isaiah does? How many times, either one or the other, good or bad, do we get in our circumstances and we forget who's on the throne? We forget that the same God that is in Isaiah's world right here is in in ours. The same God of the Bible is the same God that is in our lives today. But yet, we forget that time and time again. So, this obviously is a precursor. If you continue to read the book of Isaiah, it's a fantastic book. Towards the end, it ends tragically for Isaiah. But obviously, we know where he spends eternity. But this is where God intervenes and says, it's time to wake up. Isaiah, it's time to wake up. I need you to follow me. In similar church, it's time for the American church to wake up, as Michael had said earlier. When we read verse 2, it says, Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. When I read the seraphim, it's literally, they're literally burning ones is what, they're, is what they're called. The best commentary that I could find is they are angels on fire because of the glory of God. When we look at Exodus and we see Moses go up and, and he grabs the, the Ten Commandments, right? He, he spends 40 days, he spends a month with that. He comes down, his face is glowing, right? We, can, we read that. How much do you think it would be to spend an eternity with God and the glory that surrounds him and being in his presence? These angels were ablaze because of the glory of God. And so many times we see in Revelation where it says multitudes of seraphim were surrounding the throne, too many to count, and they had one job. Holy, holy, holy is all they say. That's all they say is the Lord God Almighty. Beloved, how too should we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Imagine that for all eternity, shouting that around the throne of glory. How amazing that experience will be. And as we move through this chapter... And Isaiah gets the vision from God. He responds as only anyone or any part of the creation should. Woe is me. Because you see, when Isaiah is is revealed and the glory of God is revealed to him, it sheds light on Isaiah's sin. He realizes who he is in light of who the God of glory is. And you see, that too is us amongst our conversion. We, God peels back the layers and he's reveals our sin to us, right? In as much as the same way as he does to Isaiah. And this is the proper response for any time that we enter the throne of God is, woe is me. And just as Isaiah was able to see and enter the throne room of God and all of his glory that goes with it, we too enter into that same throne room when we pray. 
And yet how many times is our posture very opposite from woe is me? You see, because the God of glory that Isaiah is looking at is the same God of glory that we just prayed to several times. Now, I too am guilty of this. But how many times when we sit down to to go over a meal, are we, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for this food. Amen. And then we start eating. Like, what are we doing? I'm not here to, to pick and to call out, but we have to understand who we're praying to. Because so many times, and I'm so guilty of this, guys, so don't, don't hear me pointing this at you because I'm guilty of this. We, we don't can maintain the right perspective of who we go to in prayer. Because you see, society teaches us that God is a horizontal being and that our relationship should be a horizontal being. And Michael spoke to this last week, but the only posture in which we approach a holy God is a vertical posture. On our knees... There's nothing that's horizontal. We are not on the same plane as the God that spoke the universe into existence. And so many times we get that confused. Many times we want to view God as a genie to grant our wishes when we pray. We want to take this Bible and rub it and get out of it what we want to get out of it. To glean what we want to glean from it. We, we see pastors with large churches on TV talking about that God wants you to have that house. God wants you to have that boat. God wants you to have that car. I don't see that in Scripture. Now, I'm not here promoting a poverty gospel. God has blessed my wife and I immensely with things that I never thought of as, as growing up. But guys, that is not. When Christ, when they say that he'll give you the desires of your heart, it's in line with his will. So we should never go to the Bible and proclaim things that are out of context and should not be said in prayer because it's all in accordance with his will. You see, Matthew 8, 20 says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, so many times we want to think about that as, as God trying to find, a, or Jesus trying to find a place to, to sleep, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, when you give your life to me, when I intercede for you, it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. He's not a genie, beloved, to grant your wish. This is not a a lamp that we rub to grant our wish. Let me tell you, he is what, let me tell you what he is. He is the God that spoke the universe into existence. He is the one that hung every star in the universe and knows it by name. He is the one that causes the sun to rise in the east and set in the west. He is the one, as Job says, that tells the ocean to stop here. He is the one that knows every hair on your head. He is the one that the winds and seas obey. He is the one that loves you. And one day, beloved, he's going to break that eastern sky and he's going to come in on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and eyes of fire and a tattoo on his thigh that says king of kings and lord of lords and it's high time that the American church stop referring to him as a genie to grant our wishes and instead a lord to be worshipped he's not a genie beloved he's the lord almighty and as we go to point number two Point number one, I'm sorry if I didn't give that to you, was we've lost our perspective on the glory of God. Point number two was we have lost our perspective on the gospel. See, Isaiah came before God in the throne room at that moment. And because God is so righteous, he is infinitely holy, he is infinitely righteous, he cannot be in the presence of sin. So something in that moment had to have happened. He has to clean the sins of Isaiah because he can't be amongst sin because of his holiness. This points us to Isaiah's main work that he is known for. It's in the 53rd chapter. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to flip there. If not, I believe it will be on the screen. I'm going to read Isaiah 53, 1 through 7. And I want you to listen 
beloved, to this and how he has wrote it to us about the crucifixion. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty, talking about the birth of Christ, that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel and the crucifixion of Christ. If you guys were at the men's retreat, you have heard me do this, but I feel it's so important that we get an accurate depiction of that day because we, we assume, we just look at the cross and we say, yes, Jesus died for me there, but there's so much more that goes into it. So much more goes into it. You see, whenever God created everything, he sat Adam and Eve in there and he said, you can have anything in this garden but the one tree. The day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And as we know the story, Adam and Eve, they both ate of the tree. And through their sin, it entered the world and condemned everyone. That's where we get every bad thing that happens. Cancer, hurricanes, tornadoes, sickness. Everything came through that one event. But see, God did not see fit to leave us in that state. He saw fit to send his son. And you see, his son was born, as, this, as Isaiah 53 talks about, he was born in a horse trough, not the king of the universe incarnate. We would expect to be a lot grander of an entrance, but it wasn't. He was born there. He lived his life, started his ministry. His ministry was three years long. He had 12 guys that followed him. And it came time the night before that he was to be. Now, this is a man that was perfect that had done no wrong, that had healed people. And yet God saw fit, as the scripture says, to crush him for our, for our sins. You see, that night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Christ on his knees praying to the Father and in such angst that the capillaries in his head burst and he's sweating drops of blood. Some people think that it's because he saw the cross that he was about to endure, but I contend it was something completely different because the cross at that time was very, very common. Romans at that time would put people on crosses and light them on fire to, to illuminate a road. The cross was not something that was foreign concept to Christ at this time. No, I contend that he understood. He said, let this cup pass from me. And if we look throughout scripture, the cup and the wrath of God are synonymous. He understood that he was about to have the wrath of the holy God poured out on him. And that is what caused him to be in such angst. They took him away. At that time, he, was, he would be beaten. And at that time, it was the scripture does not specify this. <clears throat> but when you look throughout history and look through biblical scholars and, and scholars of this time period, he was beaten 
what most assuredly was what would be called a cat of nine tails, which is a handle. It had nine pieces of leather, and at the end of it would be charges of glass and fish bone that would be pointed at an angle. And they would bind him to what would be essentially a stump. And the Roman guard would take it and strike Jesus over and over and over and over again. And each time he would wrap around and hook into his midsection and it would be yanked out. He would be unrecognizable, biblical scholars say at this point. Most men would have died at this point, but he did not. They carried him away and they put him in a a jail cell where they threw a purple robe around him and mocked him and said, All hail, king of the Jews. They took a crown of thorns that was not like briars that we deal with here in South Georgia, but these would be very, very long thorns, and they smashed it on his head, mocking him the whole time. This is a man that's done nothing wrong. They made him carry his cross and he was helped by a man that his name escapes me to a hill called Golgotha which literally means place of the skull. Nails were put in his hands and in his feet. He was hung on that cross. Scripture says that he had legions of angels at his disposal. And we see in the Old Testament writings that one angel killed 180,000 men in the book of Ezekiel. He had thousands of them at his command, but he called them not. Why? Because he was hanging there for my sin and your sin. The Savior of the world came in the form of a man and was succumbed to that kind of brutality, not because he had to, but to make a way for you to get back to the Father so we could overcome that curse in the garden. And you see, Scripture depicts, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Christ and God had been one and, and were in one unison together throughout the entire eternity and into his ministry and into earth. But in that one moment, he felt, he felt that, that drifting. And I'm not a theological scholar, so that's not going to come out right. So please, if anybody's watching, don't send me on Twitter or whatever. But in that moment, the communion that he had with his father was somewhat severed. And it was not because of anything that Christ had done. And it was not something that because he was on the cross and was so battered and beaten. No, beloved, it was because your sin in that moment was placed on Christ and was placed on the cross and he could not look at sin in his glory. He, that big word, that substitutionary atonement, he was yours and my substitute because we should have been there. As you see, the seraphim comes here in Isaiah. He takes the coal from the altar and touches the lips of Isaiah and says, Your sin have been atoned for. You see, in that moment, that's pointing to Christ because on Calvary, on that cross, our sin was atoned for if we would really accept it. It was the will of the Father that he crush his son for us. A man that knew no sin became sin for us. This is the greatest news that the world can ever know. And when we place our faith and trust in him, he sees us righteous. And can find no fault in us. As Amanda saying, When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found. 
dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, I stand before the throne. And it's because of that cross that we are able to stand faultless before the throne. I'm so thankful that it didn't stop there, beloved. They took him down off that cross after he died. They stuck him in a borrowed tomb. And the greatest news that has ever been told in three days, he came out of that grave. Defeating death for us once and for all. That is the gospel. That is what the world needs to hear. When we go through times as we've been going through when family members are sick, when loved ones are injured, we need to go back to the gospel and find out who our God is. Because there's nothing on this earth, nothing on this earth that can separate us from his love when we're in him. Any trial that happens on earth pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that we're going to be receiving one day. And the world needs to know that because when times get tough, people turn to a lot of things and it's not the gospel. Christ has chosen us as his vehicles in which to carry his message to the world and brothers and sisters we need to be obedient in that my time is running as we run to point three our final point I made it through that one I didn't think I was going to make it through but I made it through we have lost our perspective on the great commission Just this one verse in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Some versions say, Here I am. Send me. If we read the rest of this chapter, it goes on to talk about the judgment that Israel will encounter. And in that moment, it's going to take Isaiah as the messenger to go out and do that. But I want to look at this from a Great Commission standpoint because I think it's very apropos for what we're going through today. You see, we must respond in the same exact manner. Because once we have understood the glory of God and once we understand who we are in light of that glory and once we understand the gospel and what he has done for us and we accept that we have to continue that path and be obedient to go and tell the world about who this Jesus is you see his grace for not giving us what we do deserve and his mercy Demand complete and full surrender of our lives. Nothing else will do. We can't go to God with arms out but a closed fist. We must come to him like this. You have been bought with a price if you are in the love of Christ. Your life is not your own anymore. Here at Connection, we believe that every member is a missionary. That's in all we do. No matter the circumstances that we're called in, we are, share, we are called to share the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. You've often hear, heard Michael say that he would much rather have 50 people that are bought and sold out for the mission of Jesus Christ than 500 that comes and sits in here every Sunday. And that's accurate. That's at the heartbeat of what we do. That's at Michael's heartbeat. He wants people sold out, and we should be sold out because the gospel is alive. But yet, too often, we forget of that cross and what he's done for us and what we do deserve and what people around us don't know. I want to read you a story. It's going to be a quick one, I promise. It's about a man named John Rogers. 
The year is 1555. It was nearly 40 years after Martin Luther had nailed his theses to the wall in Germany. Also, this was framed through J.C. Ryle, and David Platt has also told this story just to give credit to those guys. The Church of England was under fire, quite literally from Mary, whom I'm sure that you guys have heard about if you paid attention in history class. She's often referred to as Bloody Mary. Over the next four years in her reign, 288 people would be burned at the stake for their Protestant faith. Men, women, church leaders, common people, and yes, even children would be killed for their faith. The first of those being a man named John Rogers. Rogers had received his education at Cambridge, became a Catholic priest, but quickly turned against the teachings of the Catholic Church. In God's providence, he just so happened to meet a man by the name of William Tyndale. Those of you that know church history, that name will be very familiar to you. Tyndale taught Rogers the Bible and the gospel, and like the rest of us, Rogers would never be the same. When Tyndale was arrested months after they had met, he left his Old Testament manuscripts with Rogers, who later would compile them into an English Bible under the code name Thomas Matthew. The Matthew's Bible would become the first authorized Bible in the English language. The reason that we're able to read the word today in English is because of this man's obedience and Tyndale's obedience to make disciples. Remember that. Although you may not be called to go to different places, you are called to make disciples. Whether you are young in the faith, you need to be searching out somebody that's more mature. If you're more mature in the faith, you need to be searching somebody that's younger in the faith. We are called to make disciples. That is the heartbeat of also something that we do here at Connection. We want to be a disciple-making church. Obedience. You never know the person that you disciple, what impact they may have. We never know what impact we may have, but we are called to be obedient in all things. Rogers would later pastor in Germany, but his heart was for the people of England. So he returned to London in 1548 with his wife and their eight children. There he preached and pastored safely under the reign of Edward VIII until he died, and soon thereafter, Edward's half-sister Mary pronounced herself queen. Rogers knew where Mary stood on religion. Specifically, she was with the church in Rome. She stood against all Protestant teaching, and she arrived in, the Lon in London in the fall of 1553. Rogers was to preach the following Sunday, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Rogers' sermon that day would be his last. A week later, he was placed under house arrest with his wife and now ten children and another on the way. Six months later, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, six months later, he was placed in prison where he would live for the next year, which led to January 5th, 1555. That day in which he was questioned and subsequently condemned for two offenses, the first being standing against the church in Rome, and secondly, denying the Catholic teaching of Holy Communion. Rogers had, been, had not been able to communicate with his family the entire time he was in prison. He had not even met his youngest child. So he pleaded for an opportunity to see them or at least speak to him one last time before he died. His request was denied. The next morning, they led Rogers out into the streets of the parish in which he had once pastored. He walked in the shadows of the church and where he had once preached. Thousands of people lined the walkway and in that sea of faces, he saw his family, his wife, holding a baby. 
The first time he had ever laid eyes on his youngest child was the day that he was to be burnt at the stake. With ten other children surrounding those two looking at their daddy. Fathers, what more of an example can we be to our wives and children than to lay our lives on the altar for Christ? One writer said that Roger stood with the shock of feelings of a father and a husband, but with the unshaken confidence of a Christian marching to his death. John Fox, in his book, Martyr, stated that he walked calmly to the stake, stating over and over the 51st Psalm. When he arrived, the sheriff gave him one last opportunity to recant and revoke his confession of faith, to which he replied, That which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Within moments, the fire at Roger's feet grew, and slowly his body began to burn, and as he lifted his arms high in the air, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. For up to that day, we did not know how English reformers would behave in the face of death. And some could hardly believe that they would give their bodies to be burned for their religion. Two hundred and eighty-seven more people had similar stories to this, and I encourage you to go read those. They were burned at the stake in a quote that I read Stated that their perspective was that the earthly embers of the pains of this world paled in comparison to the eternal inferno that they were saved from. Beloved, we too need to keep this mindset. There have been a set of numbers that have been up on these screens for the past little bit. I'm sure many of you may be wondering what they are. The Joshua Project is a, is a great internet source that you guys should check out sometime. It talks about the unreached people groups in the world. When we say unreached people groups, we mean that they have little to no access to the gospel. They don't know who Jesus is, don't know who the Bible is, or don't know what the Bible is. That top number, 3.7 billion, is the amount of unreached people groups that are in the world today that do not know or have no access to the things of God. That bottom number is the sobering number. The bottom number of 110 is how many people die each minute out of those 3.7 billion. You see, beloved, as we walk in to church and we speak to one another, we greet one another, we shake hands, do whatever we do in the day's COVID age, we come in and we sit down, we sing songs of how great our God is, we listen to somebody give a sermon, we pray and we leave. It's about 90 minutes here at Connection. Putting those two numbers together, that is almost 10,000 people since you've darkened the doors of these church and leave have died, separated from Christ. That's 10,000 people that have stood before a holy and righteous God and he has told them, depart from me for I never knew you. You see, because Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their, for who can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. These people had no idea that they could go to heaven because nobody told them about our Savior. Romans 10 verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
he has chosen us again at his, as his vehicles to go and tell the world who Christ is. And I'm not saying that all of us are called to go to the bush in Africa or are called to go to the unreached people groups in India, but I am saying you are called to go across the street to your neighbor. You are called to know who your neighbors are, to uproot your life as a sacrifice for what he has done for us because your life is not your own. How long has it been since we've invited somebody that's not family or somebody that's a non-believer over to have dinner with us, to break a bread, share a meal? How long has it been since we have taken somebody and invested in them that does not know the saving power of Jesus? Beloved, this should challenge us. This should convict us. There's one, there's a, for those of you that know me, know that I like Twitter. I'm on Twitter a bit. And for those of you that have been keeping up with things, you know that this is not a political statement because this is not an avenue in which to make a political statement. But you know that we have pulled out of Afghanistan. And you know the fallout that is coming from that as the Taliban have retaken over the country. And for those of you that know, they are extremely hostile to Christians. They will kill them on spot. There's a tweet, if you guys have got it and can put it up, that I want to read this together. This is coming from the International Mission Board. A person who works with house church networks in Afghanistan reports its leaders received letters last night from the Taliban warning them that they know where they are and what they are doing. The leaders say they aren't going anywhere. So it begins. These people understand that their life is not their own. That they have been bought with a price. And they understand Romans 10 because they are going and telling them. They, this is not a verse that is put in their house over their doorway or something that we go to small woods and print up but to live is Christ and to die is gain they live that scripture so should we God sent his son down from heaven where he was in oneness and glory with the father to us knowing that his life, knowing that it was going to cost him his life. Should we not respond in the same manner when he calls us to go? We need to understand, beloved, that we are not necessary to God's plan because he needs no one outside of himself. However, again, he has chosen us to take his message to the world and we are called to be obedient in all things. Our life is not our own and again, we have been bought with a price. His salvation did not come with strings attached and neither should our submissiveness to his will. Ultimately, it's his plan of redemption and not ours. So we're coming to the end of our time there's going to be people that's going to be alongside of the wall that would love to pray with you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the gospel of which that I have spoke. Maybe you don't know about the Savior coming and taking a place on a cross for you. These guys along the wall would love to pray with you and walk with you through that and we as a congregation would celebrate that going from death to life maybe our perspective was not where it needed to be maybe we have lost our perspective on who God really is and what he really did for us or maybe we haven't been obedient in telling our neighbors about God Everything that we do should be through the lens of the gospel. 
every interaction, every grocery store encounter, every restaurant, every day at work, everything should be looked at through the lens of the gospel because he is worthy of all praise. And maybe you're at a point where you just need to come and repent. I know several times as I was preparing for this passage, I had. He convicted my own heart. This altar will be open. Your chairs will be open. And again, these guys along the wall would love to pray with you. As we close, guys, I want to leave you with three things. May we never, may we never forget the glory of God. May we never forget the gospel of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And may Connection Church be a people that when God says, who will go, we stand up and say, here am I, Lord, send me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of which is to transform lives. Father, and we thank you that you have chosen us to carry out your mission. Father, help us as we go throughout our time to realign our focus and our perspective on you, that if we are in you, that every interaction becomes a gospel interaction, that we see our neighbors not as just people, but as people that we need to tell about you. Father, we love you. We are in awe for you. All hail King Jesus. All hail the Lord of heaven and earth. God, we love you. We thank you. And we thank you for the cross, which makes all things possible. And it's in your son's name that we pray.